Good morning, Stone Point. Can we give the Lord a hand? Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I can't wait for that annoying video to go go away. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, but it's been good times uh, over the last uh, three weeks. Today is the fourth week. We've been talking about the elephant in the room. And uh, we have several challenges here at Stone Point. And today I would say that the one we're going to address is not any less important than anything else that we've talked about. Uh, but I want to real quickly just encourage you. Last week, if you weren't here, I, I, I hope that you'll go and watch it online. Uh, we talked about the area of finances and giving. And last week, we encouraged people to take a next step in their giving. Uh, for some, we encourage you to go from giving nothing to giving something, uh, meaning maybe give up Blue Bell or your, your Starbucks latte or whatever it is and just start somewhere. Uh, for others, we said, hey, will you start giving something significant, meaning a percentage of what you make, whether it be 1% or 3%. For some, we said, hey, go to threshold giving. Threshold would be where we believe biblically uh, giving really begins, and that's at a tithe. I think for me, I grew up thinking, man, when I finally get to a tithe, I'm good. Like I'm at a perfect place with God, and I can just do whatever I want. But really, the last step, we said, hey, what would it look like if we had some people go to extravagant giving? And we, uh, we know extravagant giving is a spirit-filled giving, that you go an extra step over and beyond uh, knowing of what God gave you. And uh, last week, it was pretty in your face, lots of tough to, uh, statistics to deal with. But all in all, we had 235 plus families that said that we'll take a next step in our giving. And so I was very encouraged by that. And uh, I hope that today we see similar responses based off of the topic today. And today we're going to be talking about the area of serving and what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But what we're going to do is we're going to go old school. We're going to go up with a throwback story, a narrative in which we are going to come across a guy named Moses. And as we dive in, we're going to look at two chapters, Exodus 3 and Exodus chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there because we're going to go through the entire narrative. But what you're going to notice is five different excuses that Moses makes over the course of this narrative. And I think all of the excuses that he makes are things that are real in our lives, things that I have struggled with and maybe even today you're struggling with. And so let's dive in. Exodus chapter three, verses one through six. Let me just summarize that for you real quickly. Um, what you see is Moses is out tending to the flocks with his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro um, is a heck of a father-in-law name, right? Isn't that true? I mean, how many of you have a father-in-law named Jethro? Wouldn't it be awesome if you did? Yeah. Uh, so he, he's, he's out tending to the flocks with Jethro. And then as he's out there, there seems to be a bush that catches on fire. And as it catches on fire, Moses is stunned. I mean, you can think about all the ways that God uh, speaks to his people. But here you see that he going, he's going to choose to speak through a burning bush. And here it is, this bush, this old tumbleweed catches on fire and then out of it, it says, Moses, Moses. And then Moses approaches it and he says, here I am. And now if you can imagine what's going on, all the feelings, the mixtures of emotions that he must sense, a God who he does not seem to know speaks to him through a burning bush and he is mesmerized all at once. And then he takes a step forward and he says, hey, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. And then the voice speaks to him and he says, I am the God of your fathers. 
I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then you see the response of what happens after uh, Moses looks at him and he's afraid. In verse seven of Exodus chapter three, we'll pick up the story. So Moses is afraid, he's trembling in fear at what he has just seen. And then the Lord says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites and every other ites there are, okay? And he goes, and I want to give you this land. Now behold, verse nine, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with the, which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so here it is, God shows up and he speaks to to Moses. He goes, Moses, I am going to commission you. I'm gonna call you to go and get people who have been enslaved for 40 decades, 400 years of oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. What used to look like a good idea when Joseph and his brothers found refuge there has now become a place where there is oppression and beatings and people in Israel crying out saying, God, please call us out of this place. God, please rescue us. And so God chooses to raise up an 80-year-old man named Moses. He speaks to him through this old burning bush. I mean, think of all the ways that God could choose to speak and he chooses just an old bush. If God can use an old bush, I think the whole point of this narrative is, is that he can use you. And so here it is, uh, he's, he's calling this 80-year-old man who in his lifetime has tended to goats and sheep, have killed a man, and now the God of the universe is commissioning him to set millions of people free. Now, let me ask you a question. If that was you and God was appealing to your heartstrings, you would surely go, yes, finally, I can be something other than a vile madman, a murderer, a wicked idolater, and I can be used by God, right? That would be your response. It wasn't his. Then Moses, verse 11 says, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And you see excuse number one. Excuse number one was simply this. Moses says, I am incapable of such a thing. He goes, God, if you look at me, you look at the things that I've done, you look at my past, you look at all my baggage, you look at all my decisions, all the things that I have surrounding my life and my name, God, I am not your guy. Do you ever feel like that? Like you look at just your life and you go, God, I would love to be used by you, but I'm just incapable of such a thing. Like I, I don't have the talents. I don't, I don't have the abilities to do some of the things that you want me to do. And in a sense, you say, I'm a nobody. Like there's just nothing that significant about me or my story. I oftentimes think about that for me. Like I grew up in church. I don't have a real impressive story, so to say. I mean, I was pretty guarded. Uh, I, I didn't kiss a girl until I was in high school. I had uh, like one drop of alcohol, like, and it was a freshman year of college, you know, and, and it wasn't a whole lot. I had one night where I, you know, got a little woozy. Other than that, I've never really touched it. Like, that's my story, right? God saved me when I was 12 years old and he's protected me. I was married early. So I didn't have this wild, crazy life where I pursued lots of different passions and different things. Like for the most part, God's protected me. 
Then I look at some of your stories and I hear about people who are leading areas of our church, regeneration, some people that occasionally um, do things with our kids or student ministry or different areas outside of even our walls, working with our strategic partners. And you hear their stories about how God called them out of this wicked, you know, idolatrous life. And you, you oftentimes are mesmerized by them. Like those are the stories that we put up on our website, right? Like we, we go, wow, look what God did. He pulled them out of this. And like, you don't stick guys like me up on a website. Do you understand? And then you look at that and you go, well, I just don't have a story, but here's what I want you to understand. If God had not intervened in my life, I am in the same place as anyone else. And my story is not less important because it's not my story to tell, it's God's. And so I am thankful for the story that I have, although it seems a little bit dull and boring sometimes compared to many of others in this room. But at the same time, I praise God for the dull, boring life that I had because of all the things he protected me from that I don't have to deal with in my future. But either way, here's what I want you to hear. When God calls you to something, it's his story. And I think the greatest thing is this, is that you and I know Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, that we are created in Christ to do good works. Philippians 2 would say it this way, I begin a work in you, I'm gonna carry it into completion. And so we know that because of what God starts in us, it's his story. And we get to just walk with him on that journey. And it doesn't matter if you or I feel capable or not, because it's not about us being equipped. Why? Because look at God's response to Moses when he goes, God, I don't think I'm your guy. I don't think I'm the guy that's fit for this job. Verse 12, God says, but Moses, I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, look at promise number two, he goes, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now you may not catch this, but I want you to underline it because it's huge. Two things. One, Moses is hearing from God and God says, listen, I'm gonna call you. And if I call you, I'm going to equip you. Number two, If I call you, you can know that if I go with you, that I will not leave nor forsake you. It is almost the idea of Romans chapter eight, verse 31. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes, Moses, I'm calling you to something. I'm gonna go with you. And then here's the awesome thing. He goes, and when you go and you fulfill your call and you come back, he goes, I'm gonna join you on this mountain. He goes, I'm going to be right here and you shall serve God here. So think about this. God is giving him a call through a burning bush. He goes, I am incapable of such a thing. God says, no, you're not. I'm going with you. I'm going to strengthen your resolve. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to go with you on the journey. And then when we see me do amazing things, me being God, amazing things, he goes, I'm going to allow you to celebrate with me on this mountain. It reminds me at the end of our days, what God is calling us to. He goes, I want to use you as a vessel. I want to fill you up and pour you out. And you ought to fill many cups. You ought to fill shattered and broken cups. You ought to overflow many cups where they overflow into other cups. You ought to do all of these things. And behold, know that even while I'm with you in this age, he goes, I am preparing a place for the next in which we will celebrate on this mountain. It's the picture of John chapter 14. It's the picture of Revelation 19 through 22. That God is preparing a place for us in which we get to join him after our work on this life is finished. And can you and I not wait for the word to say, 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. Like, isn't that the longing of our hearts? I think that that's what Moses did not quite understand at this point in the narrative. He felt incapable, and here's the deal. He was incapable. And here's the deal too. You're incapable, and I'm incapable. But the bottom line is if God is with us, we're capable. And so I think the best place for leaders to be is always needing more of a dependency on God. And so I'll tell you, I I always feel so ill-equipped to do this job. I always feel so ill-equipped to lead and, and to be capable. I've never looked at myself over the last six years and go, man, I am really capable. I think I've gotten to the point where I could probably go pastor a church of 10,000 people. No, 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 why not? Because the 1,000 or 1,200 or 1,400, whatever the number is that I can't figure out that I do pastor, they drive me crazy. I don't want 10,000. <laughs> God, I'm already incapable and so I need you. And that's where Moses was. Then look in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, but if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What am I gonna say to him? So he goes from feeling incapable and literally just one point of the narrative. Now he goes, I'm incompetent. God, I don't even know what to tell them about you. I don't know, I don't know who you are. I don't know how to describe you. God, maybe if I go to seminary for a couple of years, you come back and speak to me again in the burning bush, I'll know exactly how to describe you. Do you ever feel like that? God, I would love to lead in a place of ministry, but I just don't have enough knowledge. I just don't know enough about you. If I can learn a little bit more about you, then maybe sometime you'll put me in the game. But what's interesting is, is that God does not depend on us or our ability to understand him to help us guide the narrative. Because God doesn't want us guiding the narrative. And matter of fact, if you feel incompetent, the greatest thing you need to focus on on are what? The qualities of God in your life. Look at the peace and the love and the joy he's given you. Look at the shepherding hand that he's guided you by. And that's all you have to do. Because here's the deal. People, oftentimes, I think as the cliche goes, they don't care how much you know until they what? Know how much you You've never heard that. Okay, good. Okay. So the, the cliche goes like this. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So think about this. Put yourself in Moses' shoes real quickly. He's going to a people who all they've known all their lives is oppression and bondage. They don't care who's bringing them out of slavery. They don't need a great description of God. What they need is someone to serve alongside of them and to say, I'm going to fight on your behalf. Have you ever thought about that in the narrative? Say, I don't think I really ever have. Like it it just literally hit me even this morning. Like that's, they don't need more and more of your knowledge. What they need is to know that you love them and that you care for them. That's what the church should do. And so here it is, in spite of his incompetence, God says, Moses, just tell them, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What he's essentially saying is, it doesn't matter how many seminaries attend, you attend. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have on your wall. It doesn't matter if you spend all of your days on this life searching after me, you will never completely understand me. And so God says, don't even try in the sense to impress other people trying to convince them who I am. You just tell them I am who I am. I am indescribable. I am incomprehensible. I feel the earth with my glory. To look upon creation speaks of me. 
to look upon your life and the redemptive purposes of God speaks of him. And so we know that this is merely, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is merely like a, a, just a small mirror, this life. But we're gonna spend, what, an eternity pursuing and knowing who God is. And so he goes, Moses, you just tell them I am who I am. And so he goes from feeling uh, really incapable, now he feels incompetent. Then the narrative goes on. Verse 15, God says to Moses, now you say to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be reminded throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what you've done in Egypt. And then I promise I'm gonna bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So he goes, I'm going to take you from where you are, and I'm going to give you an incredible blessing. In order to do that, he's going to have to conquer enemies, which God is going to do. Verse 18 says, and they're going to listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. And then in verse 20, you see, so Moses says, I will... Uh, God says, so I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give the people favor on the side of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. And then verses 22 and, and following, it just talks about that he's going to allow them to plunder Israel or Israel is going to be allowed to plunder Egypt. And so they're going to leave with many things. Now, what's interesting is, is this, is that you hear this narrative. You go, okay, God raises up an incapable, incompetent man to go and free people. But all the while, what is happening behind the scenes? God says, it's not your knowledge and it's not your capability, but it is what? Me. And it is my mighty hand that compels people. It sounds so similar to what we talked about in week one of this series, that as believers in Jesus Christ, our only job is to plant and water, that we will never, ever cause growth in a person. Do you realize that? Like our only job is to be willing vessels, that you and I are never the secret sauce. You and I are never, we're, we're never the point where we are, are going to somehow convince someone because it's not our job to convince. It is the spirit's work in us that moves us. All we need to do is be willing and obedient. It's not about our capability. It's not about our knowledge, our understanding, our insight, but it's about so much of our willingness. And so here it is. You think, well, maybe Moses is getting to the point that he's going to be willing because he hears of God's promises. He knows that God says, I'm going to send you ahead and I'm going to plunder them. Everything the Egyptians have, I'm going to put in your hand and you're going to walk out into a free land flowing with milk and honey. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that charge you up? You go, wow, let's do this. I'm ready. And then look at Moses' response in verse one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. And so now he feels inferior. He goes, no, they're going to call me crazy. They're going to say to me, you have never heard from God. Like, what does it even mean to hear from God? Like, you ever hear people ask you that question? So Brandon, what does it mean to hear from God? You ever thought about that question? And so here it is, Moses, probably feeling like his predecessor, Abraham. You know, Abraham in chapter 11 of Genesis, he, he senses God call him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. God says, I want you to go to a new land. Abraham was politely declined, said, no, I don't think I'm ready for that. 
Then God comes back to him in Genesis chapter 12. He goes, no, I'm going to call you to a new land. He leaves Ur of the Chaldeans. He leaves all the pagan gods of, of, of his time in Mesopotamia, and he goes to pursue a new God, right, that he's just heard of. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a step of faith? Yes. Many of us in this room, we fail to follow a God that we've heard about since we were kids. And so here it is, Moses in a burning bush. He knows of God but he's never sensed or heard from him. And here it is, he's heard from him. He goes, I'm incapable. I don't understand. I, I, I don't comprehend all that you want me to do. And even then, even if I did hear from you and understand all that you want me to do, these people here are gonna think I'm crazy. You ever feel like you're crazy? I'm not talking just because you're, you, you are crazy. I'm talking about like, <laughs> I'm talking about like in your devotion for God, you ever feel like you're crazy, you know? But, but here's the deal. I have wrestled with that for a long time. I really have. God, I feel like I'm, I'm crazy. And one of the greatest things about having a really close friend uh, or a handful of friends that are believers with you is that they remind you that you are crazy, but that it's worth it. But oftentimes I do. I think people go, Brandon, man, dude, I don't, I don't know that I can do this whole God thing like you do. Like we love the idea of God, but we don't necessarily love the idea of being all in for God because we think, well, what is that gonna cost us? I'm, what is he gonna call us to change? And so we oftentimes, we love the idea of being a Christian, but we really don't like the idea of somebody addressing us as a Bible thumping, holy roller, Jesus loving, right? Sometimes they think bigot, but the deal is this, I just kind of embrace that term. I mean, is that the worst you can say about me? Is that I love Jesus and I'm a holy roller and that somehow you judge me even though you never say anything negative about me? See, oftentimes there's a holy life that brings judgment on other people. Why? Because they, they go, I, I don't understand how that happens. But here it is, Moses, he goes, I don't know what it looks like to describe it. People are gonna say that I'm crazy and rightfully so. Do you understand? Let, let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you heard from God in a burning bush? Now, now here's the deal. Roll up into a town hall meeting and say, hey guys, I got to declare something to you because I just heard from God. He spoke to me in a burning bush. Um, hey, do you mind escorting this guy out? That's where he is. Like, that's a real feeling. And then in verse two of chapter four, the Lord then says to him, what is that in your hand? And he says, it's a staff. And he says, okay, throw it on the ground. So he throws it on the ground, it becomes a serpent and then Moses runs from it. I would too. <laughs> but then the Lord said to Moses, now put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And at that point I'd have been out. No, 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 no. So Moses does it. He picks up the snake, he catches it by his hand and it becomes a staff again. He goes, that is so that they may believe the Lord, their God, the father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. He goes, this is just one thing. And then he, get, and then he, he goes, now, now put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was a leprous hand like snow. Then God said, now put it back in your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So here it is, two crazy, awesome illustrations. God goes, I'm gonna take a, a staff, I'm gonna turn the snake back into a staff. I'm gonna take a hand, turn it into a leper's hand and then back into a healthy one. Now he goes, now I'm giving you these signs and here's why. So that they would believe. 
And then God says, if they won't listen to the first sign, maybe they'll believe in the latter. And then I love verse nine. You can even underline it. He goes, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it onto dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So think about this. He goes, go dip a bucket into the Nile and then come and pour it onto dry land and I'm gonna turn it into blood. Now, let me ask you a question. With all these feelings of incapability, um, incompetence, inferiority, you'll notice that God never gave him some sort of pick-me-up, some like, hey, man, it'll be okay. You got your life together. And hey, I'm gonna use you in spite of yourself. He never said that. Here's what God said. He goes, I'm gonna do a few signs. And if the first signs that I do don't compel them, then don't you worry, I'll keep doing things to compel them. And I, th I think that's the most spring thing for us sitting in these seats. Like you don't have to be the person next to you. You don't have to be the person you dream to be. You don't have to be that Christian that you look at and you go, man, he's off the charts and man, he loves Jesus. I just wish I could be like him or I wish I could be like her. No, you can just be you and then trust that God will go in front of you compelling with a mighty hand. And I think that's what it looks like to rest in God. Then Moses says in verse 10, after he hears this, I'm going ahead of you, I'll compel people. You would think at this point in the narrative that he's like, okay, I'm ready, let's do this. And then verse 10, he go, Moses says, but Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since that you've spoke to your servant. Now, now let me ask you a question, okay? Let's put this in just East Texas redneck terms real quickly, okay? If you can't speak well, and God says, I want you to go speak on my behalf, like, what do you say? You don't say, God, I am not eloquent. <laughs> like some of us in here, we've never used the word eloquent at any point in our life. Like most of us would go, God, man, I just can't, I can't talk for you, man. I can't. And here it is, a guy who's claiming not to be eloquent goes, God, I'm not eloquent. <laughs> I'd have been like, sign the boy up. We can teach him the rest, right? And then he look, he goes, I am of slow speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or sing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. And so here it is. You look at that, another awesome promise. He goes, you go and I'll be your mouth. And then look, he goes, I'll teach you. So think about it. In the, the feelings of incapability, inferiority, uh, this idea that you can't comprehend all that God is doing. He goes, listen, if you'll just be willing, I'll teach you along the way. Have you thought about that? Like, I'll, I'll teach you. You let me guide you. And I think the greatest challenge for us in here is just to stay in stride with the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. To trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but all your ways acknowledge him that he may make your path straight. I mean, I think the biggest challenge for me here as a pastor is not relying on my own strength and understanding, but just, just to embrace that God is the one who compels and goes before us. And so when you hear from God, look, then, then follow him. And I can think of several moments that I've heard from God here as the pastor at Stone Point. The first one was his call to come back to a community that I hated. It was God's call. And the reason why that I know it's God's call is because of all the people that I see are influenced on a weekend now. How God grew that. God grew that from 13 to... 1,300 people, like, and that's a God thing. It's not me because I look at myself and I go, there's no way that I could have 
somehow aspire to be this or do this or whatever. Now, I was gathered with 12 different pastors across the country this last week, and many of them are fantastic guys. But one of the guys asked me, he goes, Brandon, what do you think your next advance is in terms of the ministry? And I'm talking to guys who they're advancing and they're going from churches of 300 to 600. And I said, you know what? I don't think there is an advancement for me. I said, I feel so called to a community that I don't see God's freedom to leave yet. And I said, and that's not even a question that I asked myself. And the reason why is because I know there's so much work to do. And for the first time in my life in the ministry, in six years, I haven't gone to churchstaffing.com to look for another job. And the reason why is because I am so sure that God called me here that I do not have the freedom or the luxury to lead or leave, leave. But I do have to what? Lead. And I have to influence people, even though oftentimes I feel crazy and I feel inferior, I feel incapable. And I can promise you there are many, 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 many days where I feel incompetent. But God goes, Brandon, I will teach you and I will lead you. And that's all I got. But isn't that an awesome place to be? I can remember another time that God says, I'm gonna provide for you every need that you have. And he gave me the promise in Matthew chapter six. And he said, I'm gonna take care of you. And he always has. I can remember the things that I specifically heard God from. I remember a prayer meeting standing right there in that corner. And uh, I sensed God say, I want you to raise $50,000 in one Sunday and give it all away. And I'm like, God, okay, number one, I don't mind raising $50,000, but I think we should keep it. And he goes, no, I want you to give it all away. And in one Sunday, we raised 60,000 plus dollars. Now, the question is this, do I tell you that because it was me? No, it wasn't me. It had nothing to do with me. But I will tell you this, when God calls, you should go because he is the one who compels. He is the one who moves. Now, let me give you one small reservation. If it's not God calling, don't go. Because oftentimes we confuse the human will with what we think God wants us to do. And oftentimes we fall flat on our face. Now, can we fall flat on our face and God use that? Yes. But oftentimes we oftentimes run ahead in feelings of that somehow we are superior and that we know what God wants us to do. So Moses is kind of in a good place where he's feeling inadequate at this point. He's got an infirmity. What's his infirmity? He goes, I can't speak well. I'm not eloquent. I, I don't know that I can use you. And here's what I want you to hear. If maybe that's where you are, you're like, God, I'm hearing from you. I want you to move. I want you to do something. I feel compelled to go. I feel like I should, should kind of take that direction, but I'm just not sure I'm the person. Well, let me tell you this. If God can use a donkey to speak to Balaam, he can use you. Praise God. If he can use a rooster to speak to Peter, he can use you. If he can use old sheep hides to speak to a guy like Gideon, he can use you. If he can use an old bush in the middle of a desert to speak to a guy like Moses, he can use you. And so I just encourage you to take all your inadequacy, all your incompetence, all your inferiority complex, all of your uh, incapabilities, all those things to say, God, I'm gonna trust you to be capable on my behalf. That while I am, what, weak, you will be strong. And so you think, man, okay, this incredible narrative, surely Moses is charged and ready to go. Yes? And then in verse 13, I think the saddest verse in maybe our Bible, but for sure in this narrative, Moses says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. God, I'm not your guy. 
And, and here's what I want you to hear. When we get to the point where we feel incapable, incompetent, and inadequate, it creates something far bigger than you and a problem that you keep within you. But it actually brings a feeling of indifference into your life. Indifference. Now you go, well, I don't really understand what you mean. Well, here's what I mean. You have literally a million plus, probably two million plus people who have always known slavery and bondage at the hands of their oppressors in Egypt. And God raises up a man like Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go. And because of all the internal issues that he has going on in his life, he can't see a greater need around him because he's so darn selfish. And he has this feeling of indifference to the cause right there in his life. How God would take an 80-year-old man who's been beat up and bruised and made many mistakes and give him an opportunity to set millions of people free and he, he dodges the opportunity. And God says, you know what? I'll do something different. And in that moment, you can see the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. He goes, if you're not gonna do it, don't you worry. I'll, I'll couple you with someone else that will remind you. And I'll, I'm gonna give you your brother, Aaron, and he's gonna be your mouth. And I'm gonna teach you both what to do, but you're gonna teach him what I told you. And in verse 16, he says, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and he shall be as God to him. Take your staff, this, this, take your hand, this staff, which will do all of your signs. But here's what I want you to see. And, and this is where God like just broke me earlier. The feelings of indifference that Moses had were the same feelings that I see and I wrestle with here at Stone Point. Like we have become indifferent to the needs around us. And the reason my heart broke is because I have but one prayer that I pray consistently over and over and over again. And that prayer is for a four-year-old blonde girl, for a five-year-old kid that's spontaneous, and then I've got a seven-year-old who's a little bit more reserved. But I pray every single day that God would redeem them for his purposes, that they would just have salvation. And then I look out upon a thousand people that I pastor, and we can't get 55% of the adults sitting in this room to serve in any capacity, and we've become indifferent to the ministry around us. And I am saying this, I will gladly get off this stage and go back and serve in our kids' ministry and our student ministry or whatever it takes so that my kids have an opportunity because I no longer want people feeling like they have to be pinned somewhere in ministry going, I'm just kind of indifferent to this area. It, do you understand what's at stake? And it's not any different than what's at stake for the hands of the Israelites. Like if God doesn't have someone step up, then they don't see freedom. And that's where we are. We're at a place where we've become indifferent to the things going around us. God, I've, I'm, so, I'm so confused. God, I've got so much going on in my life. I just don't see how I can be a blessing to anybody else. And we are looking so inwardly that we never are able to focus on the needs that are right around us, that we have men and women in your schools, in your neighborhoods, at your workplace that need freedom, 
from the bondage that they're in. We have places here that we need people to step up and time and time and time again, we have a feeling of indifference. I'm so busy, I've got too much to go on. If you just knew what I had going on in the week, listen to me, I can promise you what, what busyness looks like, I, I understand. And I'm not trying to guilt you into something, I'm just saying this, that's where Moses got to feelings of indifference. Because the longer that we look at ourselves, and the longer we look at all the things that are wrong with us, the longer we begin to fail to see what's right with God and how he can use us in the world. And my prayer is that God would speak to us deeply. I wanna kind of wrap up uh, this, this time together and I wanna show you this incredible video that I hope will speak to you in such a way that maybe reminds you of the different areas that God places us and how he can use us. So sit back and make sure you pay very close attention um, because it's incredible. There's a story right in the middle of the gospels that you may have heard. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples one day when the mother of two of them, James and John, she comes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, when you get to your kingdom, would you let one of my boys sit on your right and the other on your left? <laughs> uh, the Bible doesn't say exactly what the other disciples thought about this, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of snickered at James and John a little bit for getting their mama to do their dirty work for them. But I bet all of them also had another thought in one form or another. How do I measure up? We've all probably heard before how God wants us to step up and be spiritual leaders, try to make a difference for the kingdom. A friend of mine named Miles comes to mind. Miles has been pretty successful in his business. Well, really successful. And I watch him sometimes and admire the way that he uses the platform that God's given him. The integrity that he tries to show in the way he conducts his business. The money that he has that he can give away. I started my own business a while back, a dot-com. Stop me if you know where this is going, right? I used to think about all the the great ways that God could use me once my business took off, all, the, all the, the, the people I could influence, all the money I could give away, just like my friend. I, I think of myself like this cup, you know, and, and I, I pray, God, would you, would you just fill me up with opportunity, with influence? G give me a platform to, so I could use it for you. Funny thing happened to me though, right before my dot-com dot-bombed, when, when it still looked like it might actually take off. I started to think of myself not as the cup that God could use, but as the coffee inside. I was what was gonna be so beneficial to God's kingdom. Maybe I'd even deserve a seat next to Jesus. I've got another friend, Maria. She works in a, a fancy high-rise building downtown cleaning luxury condos and penthouses. Her job really doesn't give her much of a platform, 
like Miles has. And she definitely doesn't have a lot of extra money to give away. But I think of her when I think about the way Jesus responds to that question from James and John's mom. Because Jesus, he, he turns to the disciples, to all of them, probably because he knew that they were all thinking the same thing. And he says, you guys want to be great? Here's how you do it. Become a servant. You see this sleeve on this cup? It's only got one job, to support the cup. That's it. I, uh, I think a lot of times God says to us, to me, I don't want you to be the cup today. Be the sleeve, just be the sleeve. Take the heat for someone else. It can be a humbling role to be the sleeve when you always saw yourself as the cup. But uh, Jesus, he wasn't done yet. He says to his disciples, you want to be great, be a servant. But whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Do you ever feel like all you're doing is cleaning up someone else's mess? That you don't get any credit for the work you're doing for the kingdom? I got news for you. The cup, it's important. The sleeve is very important. But Jesus says when you're willing to be the napkin, you're first. There's something about the secret life of a Christian, about being the napkin and nobody even knows about it. Preachers, I think, like to call it humility. I sort of like to think of it as some sort of spiritual gravity, gravity for your soul. Jesus said, if you humble yourself before him, he will lift you up. But if you make yourself big, he will humble you. aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe today God will give you an opportunity, ask you to step up and lead, even if you aren't used to it. Use you as a cup in somebody's life. Maybe tomorrow he'll ask you to step down and be the sleeve that supports somebody else as they lead. And the day after that, God might ask you to be the napkin, to just be there for someone who's hurting and help make the invisible kingdom visible. And if he does, then rejoice. 
because he says you're first. I heard somewhere that the kingdom of God is bringing what's up there down here. Maybe the way to do that is to worry less about where we can step up and lead and more about where we can step down and serve. But whatever role God gives you, the cup, the sleeve, or the napkin, don't ever forget you are not the coffee. Yeah. So, so my prayer is, is that God would just remind you that he is the coffee and that we have this unique opportunity to be a part of his work. Regardless of how incompetent, how inadequate you may feel, may you just trust that he is enough to fill the cups of other people, that we would just be the vessels. So here in just a second, I'm going to have a couple of our volunteers hand out a card to you. And that card looks very similar to the one that you got last week, almost so similar that you're like, oh, I already got that card. But this week, I want to just encourage some people to take another next step. And one of the next steps would be that you would say, I'm willing to just to start serving somewhere, that I, I want to be used. And there's lots of reasons that maybe you haven't. And I get all of those reasons. And so I'm not trying to guilt you into something. I just want you to know the reality of what's happening. Right now, we have 291 volunteers here at Stone Point. Right now, we have 450 uh, spots that are available in one given week. And so already, you can see that there's 159 places that need to be serviced. Now, here's what I want you to know too. Out of the 291 volunteers, 91 of those people double up. And so that means that really, if you boil it all down, there's 249 vacancies that need to be filled. Now you may go, well, that seems like a lot and maybe we're overusing volunteers, you know, but here's what I want you to realize that right now, 55% of our adults don't volunteer. And when I'm talking about volunteering, I'm speaking specifically of giving time here within our ministries here and so I just encourage you that you would take a next step for some of you to say, I'm going to start serving. And we know that right now that's roughly 350 adults here that could start serving in some capacity. For others of you, we're just asking that maybe you would say, I'll sacrifice more time. Right now I park and that takes about 15 minutes before service. I'm willing to up the ante. I'm willing to serve a little bit more. For others that you would commit to make a shift. Now make a shift from one area that is very convenient to go, I, I'll, I'll stop being the cup and I'll be the napkin. I'm going to serve in an area that's a lot more demanding and a lot more challenging. And so we encourage you to do that. And then there's the other part, and that's that you would stand in the gap. And the stand in the gap would be the person who, no matter what the need, no matter the hour or the time, no matter the sacrifice that it caused me, even if it means that I just need to go hold babies when I would be sitting in a service, I'm willing to stay into the gap. It could be that you get a call at nine o'clock on Saturday night that somebody declined and said, hey, we need a teacher for the third grade boys. And you go, I'm in, you know, that's staying in the gap. But listen, staying in the gap is something that's easily checked and oftentimes easily turned down. Because most of the time when you stand in the gap, it's the most inconvenient time. And most of the time, it's the thing that's turned down the most. So pump somebody will say, I want to stand in the gap, pastor. You just tell me where. And then when we call and we go, hey, we need you to stand in the gap here. 
They go, I don't think that's me. And so I just encourage you, whatever that be, would you please take a next step? Consider how you can be a part. But I also want to just encourage you as we do that, don't get wrapped up in the bystander effect. And the bystander effect is a sociological term that oftentimes is used from a case in New York in 1964. In March of 64, there was a lady in New York. Her name was Kitty Genovese. Though many people would say that the the story has been largely exaggerated, there are reports upwards of 38 people that onlooked or heard about a scene where a girl was brutally stabbed and raped in New York as she was leaving work and going to her apartment one evening late. Now, many people would say it wasn't that many people. There's lots of different reports. It's been the bystander fact has become known because of this. But of all of the people that saw or heard, none of them called the police. And the reason why is because every single one of them assumed what? Someone else would do it. And I think that's where we are. I think what we have come to be is, in in last week, whether it be financial or serving or any place in ministry, I think two things happen to be true. One is we feel ill-equipped, and so we don't serve. Or number two, we feel like God's going to raise up someone better. But let me ask you a question. When God raised up Aaron, was that the better choice? Because if you look at Aaron, he always led people where? To golden calves and to idol worship. See, I don't want someone else taking my blessing. And I'll tell you that my greatest blessing is not pouring into adults here. My greatest blessing would be that I would be a father and a dad that made sure that my kids heard the gospel and that they had salvation. That is far greater job. And so I'm asking, would there be some people here that would help invest into my kids? Would there be some people here that would start investing in greeting and parking? Because parking is is better than preaching. And here's why. Because within the first few moments of them pulling into a building that looks like garbage, you know, they're making an impression about us with how well people park them and greet them. And so I want you to know there is no place that is greater or least, but I do pray that you would be involved and that you would pray about being the cup, that you would be the holder, or that you'd be the napkin, and that you'd realize that those can change depending on your context. But there is no way that as believers in Christ, changed by the gospel, that we can sit idly by in a seat. It's not biblical, and it should not be possible. And so I pray that you would take a next step. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning. We pray, God, that you would use it to to stir our heart's affection for you. Lord, help us to bless others because you have blessed us. Or Lord, just as John said it in 1 John chapter 4, I pray that we would love others because you have first loved us. And, And so God, may we know that the way that we love others best is not telling them what all we know, but showing them how much we care. And God, there's a lot of different ways that we can show people how much we care. And I pray that we would find one of those ways and that we would get involved. That we would be a sacrificial because you sacrificed so much for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all check.